This podcast is made possible by listeners like you. Please be sure to subscribe and share with friends and family. To help support this ministry, please visit allentempleamec.com slash donate. Thank you for listening. I surrender all. scripture has been read but allow me to read it again and we will pray and we will preach I'm going to read it from the message Bible where it makes it plain from Matthew 13 beginning at the 53rd verse hear these words when Jesus finished telling these stories he left there returned to his hometown and gave a lecture in the meeting house. That's a sermon, y'all. He made a real hit impressing everyone. We had no idea he was this good, they said. How did he get so wise, get such ability? But in the next breath, they were cutting him down. We've known him since he was a kid. He's the carpenter's son. Yeah. We know his mother Mary, we know his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and, and Judas and all his sisters live here. Who does he think he is? They got their noses all bent out of shape. But Jesus said, a prophet is taken for granted in his hometown and his family. And he didn't do many miracles there because of their hostile indifference. Pray with me. Yes, Lord. Speak, Lord. Pour out as you have poured in. Give us ears to hear and hearts to receive that your word may take root and bring forth spiritual fruit, some 30, 60, and 100-fold. May someone come running, asking, what must I do 
to be saved. Use me that I may be used. For this is your servant's prayer. In Jesus' name, I pray. Amen. Amen. <clears throat> I want to preach from the theme this morning, when the pew preaches. Yeah. When the pew preaches. My brothers and sisters, the church is not a building, but the people who gather in it. The church is a spiritual gathering place whose center of worship is Jesus Christ alone. The church is laid on the foundation stone of Holy Scripture, the Bible. The church's hallmark is what is love, justice, and service. The church, the church is a spiritual refuge and soul-saving station. The church, I declare, is a hospital and a healing home for sin-sick souls. The church yes. is a training station for belief, behavior, and belonging. The church teaches the ways of God, revealed in Holy Scripture, seen in the life of Christ. The church or the headlights and not the taillights in society, leading the way, preaching sermons, not just with lips, but with lives. And finally, the church is a place of belonging where the called out ones from the world gather under the banner of Christ to be and become not perfect, but progressing souls using acts of love and service, giving to others in and beyond the four walls of the building. The church, the church. in a nutshell, is a group of baptized believers in Christ engaged in a mutual web of connections and community support where spirit connections yeah. can become thicker than blood connections where outsiders marvel when they see us interacting with one yeah, another yeah. and they say how they love one another. Yeah. Well, I want some of that. Yeah, yeah. Yet, yeah. there is always a distance and too often a disconnect between what is written on the pages of the Bible and what is lived out in the lives of those who call themselves Christ lovers and Christ followers. Mm. And as we shall see in our passage today, there is also an assumption, Pastor Marriott, uh, 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 and that assumption is that it's only the pastor that preaches the weekly sermon. Come on, preacher. There's the assumption that sermons only come from the pulpit. Huh. Any issue? Not in this church. Of course not. Maybe over in the United Methodist Church, or maybe in the AMEZ Church, or maybe in the CME Church, but surely not this church. Any issues a church has must mm, originate from the pastor, from the pulpit, from leadership, from the ones who preach the weekly sermons, right? Mm -hmm. But this type of thinking contradicts Holy Scripture, as we shall see. 
If this thinking stands to reason, somebody please help me understand a, 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 a few questions by doing the math. Somebody say, do the math. Do the math. Do the math. What are you saying? By the number of people in the pews, I ask myself the question, where are the members' responsibilities? Come on, preacher. Where are the members' commitments and sacrifices outside of worship? Where do members bring their gifts and graces weekly to bless others in and outside of the church? Are not the majority of church members made up of pew members? Do the math. Uh, let me ask you something. Whose voices echo the loudest in the hallways of the church, uh, on street corners, in local diners, in private living rooms, and on the sidewalks in this community? Uh, you see, numbers speak loudly, if not always accurately. So when things may go awry, do we lay the issue solely at leadership's door, forgetting to do the math, omitting three-fourths of the equation, forgetting the majority, membership's responsibility and accountability? Mm -hmm. hmm. What is then and where is the power and accountability of the pew? Well, well I invite us to journey with Jesus today and walk through the pages of the Bible to get to the bottom of these and other musings in our midst as we preach from the theme, when the pew preaches. Somebody say, when the pew preaches. Well, I have a confession to make. For many years as a senior pastor, I had a controlling metaphor for ministry, this big idea. I was telling another pastor a couple of months ago at a summer picnic that I, too, was once under the impression that a strong pulpit automatically equates to a strong church. Well, That's what I believe. Yeah. But I was to be corrected after almost 18 years of pastoral ministry in two congregations. I was under the erroneous impression that the one preaching the Sunday sermon could exercise holy influences, that the one preaching the Sunday sermon uh, could do some good with a holy lifestyle and with a relevant spoken on time word making it plain, I thought perhaps to myself I could by God's help persuade others to see Jesus more clearly to love Jesus more dearly, to walk with Jesus more nearly, and to love our neighbors as God loves us. I used to think this way, like many of us do today, to believe that the one with the microphone, the one given the Sunday sermon, yeah. has the most influence, speaking the most loudly and clearly every single Sunday. Well, there is a huge button. There is a big miss, M-I-S-S, -S, in this logic. This equation only factors in the pulpit. It leaves out the pew filled with more numbers, more members than in the pulpit. Make it plain, preacher. Yeah. It's not only the pulpit that preaches, but the pew preaches too. Beloved of God, as we shall see, and you, members sitting in the pew of this congregation, I want you to know, God wants you to know, you preach too. Amen. 
Those of you in the Zoom room, you preach too. And if you didn't recognize it and know it, I'm here to ask you to own it. Your sermon is often the loudest. Your sermon often lasts the longest and seeps into many cracks and crevices in the community beyond these four walls. So I ask you, my brother, I ask you, my sister, what sermon have you been preaching? What has been your sermon text and title these past 10 years as a member under the leadership of Pastor Mary Allen? This is the gist of today's sermon when the P preaches. Well, when preparing this sermon, a word picture came to me. It's a metaphor of sight pointing, if you think about sight. And some, I hear to tell you, have willful blindness. As uh, the first 23 verses of this chapter in the parable of the sower, it talks about willful blindness, seeing. There's something about sight. Eyes open or eyes shut. I either want to see or I don't like what I see, so I close my eyes in denial. Uh, but the greater blessing is I not only want to see, but I want to see more so I can do more. Sight. Sight. So let's look at the sermon passage. And let's look at the place and the people and their process. And let's look at the push and the pulls of them living together as a worshiping community. I've read the sermon scripture in your text. So the place where they were was called Nazareth. Mm -hmm. Nazareth was a small, obscure, unimportant village with a population of a few hundred mostly related folks. Uh, uh, outside of the New Testament references to uh, Nazareth as Jesus' hometown, uh, uh, no other uh, uh, first century texts uh, uh, talk about Nazareth. In, in, uh, in short, Jesus' hometown, if you will, if I can just make it plain, was a hick town. <laughs> it was a podunk place. One little blip of a berg on the backside of beyond. And so it was natural that at some time Jesus would pay a visit to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And yet it was a brave thing to do. The hardest place for a preacher to preach is the church where they were a child. The hardest place for a doctor to practice is the place where people knew you in. The text says... Matthew 13, 54, uh, after Jesus taught, they were astonished after he finished his preaching, teaching sermon. And, and the word astonished, when I looked it up in the Greek lexicon, it means they were wholly out. They were thunderstruck, struck out of their senses. They were amazed. They were dumbfounded. They were left at a loss. They, if you will, the word picture here was like this. You ever seen somebody, their mouths are hanging open, and the mama say, close your mouth before you catch a fly? <laughs> that, that's the picture here. One can be thunderstruck by the Holy Spirit's movement. Well. 
from a sermon or a Bible study teaching and have a spiritual awakening and a refiner's fire in the soul, uh, like hearing God's voice, like feeling God's touch, like feeling the weight of sin fall off and the chains of bondage being broken. And I wonder this morning if there's anybody in here who knows about the freedom of the release when the Holy Spirit begins to move. And that's what the songwriter mentioned when he said, I went to church last night. And my heart wasn't right, but something got a hold of me. And you know the next line says, it must have been what? The Holy Ghost. Say amen, somebody. Well, sadly, this is not that in the Bible. This was not an occasion of running towards God. It was an occasion of pushing back against God because y'all know we know how we can be sometimes. Just look at the lights and say amen. I ain't, no, I ain't looking at you. I ain't looking at you. I, I, your pastor didn't tell me nothing about y'all. Amen. So a, amen. If you can't say amen, say out. Amen. Well, the, <laughs> the wider context of this passage in each gospel parallel, Mark and Luke's gospel, what do they tell us about this passage in Matthew? It tells, they tell us that Jesus, known by reputation outside of Nazareth, he was known to be a way maker, a miracle worker, promise keeper, a light in the darkness, God in the flesh who had so recently exercised demons, stilled storms, healed the dying, and even raised one from death to life. Jesus in Nazareth finds his character now assassinated. He finds in Nazareth now his motives being questioned. He, he finds that his power is curtailed by a wall of unbelief at home. Don't believe me? Just listen to their words. The congregation asked five questions that had nothing to do with the truth of the sermon Jesus gave. Listen, it's in your Bible. One, where did this man get this wisdom and these powers? They were gripped, they griped, about Jesus' wisdom and miraculous power, but did they write down those helpful holy hints that would transform their lives? Did they write them down and meditate on the word day and night through the week? Did they get in the prayer line or come to the mourner's bench or to the prayer uh, 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 banner uh, to be healed of their ailments or or have the devil violently uh, uh, evicted from their lives? What did they do? Did they come to Jesus so that just with one look or one touch, he could deliver them? You know, it's like someone who's insecure, who says when they hear somebody who's learned to speak, they say beneath their breath, child, you don't need all that. Mm -hmm. See, they were putting Jesus down but intimating that he didn't even go to the ancient Near Eastern local seminary. Seminary. They said he shouldn't be that smart. How could he know all this? That's the first thing they said. Where did this man get this wisdom and these powers? The second thing they said, is not this the son of that dead carpenter? Talk, you don't talk evil about the dead. He's the son of the local handyman Joseph. Child. He didn't even go into his father's trade when he died. 
Now Mr. Ben got that shop. It's now a butcher shop with the best lamb chops around, shaking their head. Can't you see somebody, child? I don't even know. Oldest son is supposed to follow in the footsteps of the father. That's what they said. Is not this the son of the dead carpenter? Third thing they said, is not his mother named Mary? This so-called rabbi Jesus didn't even take the business. Now, that's a scandal, leaving his poor mama on her own to fend for herself and all those miles of feed. Can't you hear him? Yeah. Oh, we don't talk like that in this. I know, I know. I don't even know how she made it financially all these years. Child, who paying her bills? Are oh, you with me? The fourth thing they said, are not James and Joseph and Simon and Judas, his brothers and his sisters, live on so-and-so street around the corner in Mount Vernon? Mm. Mm -hmm. Yep. We've known them from knee-high to a grasshopper, taught them Hebrew in Sabbath school, and that Judas could never sit still for a minute, had to bribe Jimmy with candy just so he would pay attention, and that Jesus, he didn't seem all that bright at the time. You know how we can be. And the fifth thing they said, well, where did Jesus get all these things? He can't be that good. Uh, the message rendering says we got to put our mouths on his reputation. We got to bring him down a few notches. He didn't got too big for his britches. He ain't deserving of this fine reputation. Can't nothing good come out of Nazareth, right? We got to do something about this, y'all. We got to call a meeting. Yeah. Mm. Amen. Did you get it? Yeah. Did you hear it? Hear what? Those five questions. That was the pew preaching. That was their sermon. Were they preaching life or death? Let me ask you this question. Can you be real? Don't lie in the house of God. Who would want to go back there after hearing the pew preach that sermon? Mm. What? atmosphere were the pew folks preaching and creating. Make it plain, preacher, we too often wound with our words. Have you? No, 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 no. Uh, uh, I'm going to go from the Bible. I'm coming right down your alley. I ain't talking about you, but if you recognize it, just, just blink real hard if you can't say amen. Have you ever seen a parent put down their child in private or public. Have you ever seen a spouse cut down the other by comparing them to others? Have you ever seen a friend spill the beans of another and it wasn't their finest moment? Have you ever seen a person in authority throw another under the bus just because? Then I ask you, what kind of atmosphere did they create? Mm -hmm. Did they speak life hmm. or death? Blessings or cursings? Mm -hmm. My God, my God, the mindless, monstrous things we create with our loose lips. Help us, Lord. Well, in the congregation where Jesus stands and in this congregation where we sit, we need to know something that the gospel, when it is preached, 
when it is shared, always demands a response. And what was their response? I'm glad you asked. The congregation's verdict of that one preaching, teaching sermon Jesus gave that is recorded in verse 57 says, and they took offense at him. The word offense in the Greek lexicon means the word scandalon. If you think of scandal, you, it, it's spelled similarly between the Greek and English, just with the K4C. Scandalon means to entrap, to trip up, to cause to stumble, to cause to entice to sin, cause someone to walk away from Jesus. It's like a, an odious fragrance that makes one become offended, like skunk odor. You know, polecat, you know, a skunk. It, it, you see, that, that, that odor can be sprayed and spread from a distance, carried on the airwaves by text and telephone, and the stench rubs off on others miles away. The word scandalon refers to the motion-sensitive piece on the mousetrap. And when you touch it, it sets off the death knife, and it unlatches, and it catches, and the deed is done. Well, a writer once called offenses the bait of Satan. Folks getting upset and offended with unforgiveness, and spite, and jealousy, and hatred, and they miss their blessings Stain in spiritual bondage, a uh, uh, spiritual uh, bondage. Uh, scandalon. It looks like the word scandal uh, if you really look at it. But I ask you this question this morning: Where was the scandal? Had truth become a scandal? Where was the real scandal here in the congregation that Jesus stood? Was the scandal in the sermon preached in the pulpit by Jesus? Or was the real scandal preached by those few in the pew? By unnamed members whom we may assume were at least five. Pastor Marriott in the synagogue raising came. I, I say five members because there were five lines of questioning from the pew. Uh, I don't know. I'm not, I don't know, y'all. So, you know, uh, uh, darling, go, go, go and uh, uh, turn the car on. We might have to go. <laughs> we might have to go. Well, pause and reflect with me. I wonder where are we in this ancient Near Eastern congregation? Where are we in this conversation? What roles have we played in the past here at Allen Temple? What role are we acting out right now as we hear these words spoken? You see, the ancient text is a timeless mirror. Are we offended now? Because truth is being told? We're offended now because uh, light is shining on us and we feel a little exposed? Uh, are we upset uh, 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 because uh, there is an attempt? God wants to set us free and keep us free. You see, Jesus did it. And was he wrong for trying to liberate them? Mm. I wonder to myself. 
I mentioned before about the metaphor seen like the blind man in Mark 10, 51 on the side of the road who called out to Jesus, like the Greeks who came to Jesus in John 12, 21. What do both of these encounters have in common? They all said, we want to see Jesus. Shall the preacher then become the enemy because they share the truth of God's holy word? That's what Paul asked in Galatians 4.16. Have I become your enemy because I've told you the truth? Well, God, though, has a way of working in the worst. And there is always some good news. But it's hidden here. Let me help you see it. One, Jesus didn't let their rejection stop him. Like a UPS letter carrier, he dropped the message in the box of their hearts for them to either accept it or reject it. Two, Jesus did not stop his ministry because the pew sermon uh, countered his sermon. Three, the other piece of the good news is this, is we find it in Jesus' words before he left his hometown synagogue where maybe he visited for the very last time. Jesus said, a prophet is without honor, except among his own family and in his own hometown, and only a few miracles were done. Somebody say a few. few. Because of their indifference. Don't miss this. What are you saying? Not all was lost. Not all were closed up. Not all in the pew preached the same sermon. There were a few pew members who got their blessing. There was a few who got a word of deliverance. A few who got a word of prophecy. A few in the pew who got healed, who got the devil off their back and off their lives. A few in the pew who got their lives back together because Jesus' message of salvation was preached and they reached out and grabbed it. Well, Thank God for the faithful few. Thank God for the remnant in every church, in every cathedral, in every chapel, in every storefront house church. And thank God for Jesus who modeled for us the reality of how some church folks can be when the pew preaches the Sunday sermon and their sermon is louder and longer and filled with a message of what? Message of mess. Nothing there to deliver a soul from the grip of Satan. Nothing there to push one closer to Jesus. Just feeding folks spicy delicacies of slime-filled, sin-sick junk food, a.k.a. gossip. My God, my God. Well, when we look in the mirror, what do we see? What do you see here in the text that reflects you right here, right now? Are you comfortable or not? Does this passage give you peace or not? Does it convict you or not? Does it encourage you or not? Ask yourself, are my eyes open or shut? Do I want to see? Do I not like what I see? Or do I want to see more? Or, Or am I in that minority group? that got their blessing. The few in the pew who were blessed by the wisdom of the word, blessed by the deeds of power that flowed from the move of the Holy Ghost. I want to know, do you want to see? Well, somebody help me. Look at this 2,000 
plus year old text that speaks so loudly and clearly and timely to the church of Jesus Christ today. Here folks became upset, filled with angst, closed-minded with closed hearts, closed off to God when they heard the teaching, preaching truth of the gospel. And did you notice something? The passage does not say what specific scripture Jesus was teaching from that made them mad. Mm -hmm. Well, I'm going to tell you, it don't matter. Why is it don't matter? It don't matter because when your heart is not right, when your heart is closed, any excuse will do to reject Jesus even in the flesh. Let me help somebody. Now, I, I don't know about how young people date these days. But when I was growing up in Houston, you know, I didn't have a car. I had a job, but I didn't have a car. I had a girlfriend every now and then, live across town, way on the town, and I had to take a bus 45 minutes in this direction and 45 minutes in that direction. And then before the sun went down, because Houston was a sundown town, I had to do it again. 45 minutes. What are you saying? I'm saying we do what we want to do. Say amen, somebody. If you want to do it, you're going to find a way. Say amen, somebody. And when it comes to the work of God, if we want to do it, we together will find a way. Say amen, somebody. You know, with some, you could have the best spiritual meal cooked and served, like tasting manna from heaven. But there will always be a few in the pew who will say, just like they did in Numbers 11 and 6, when the manna fell down from heaven. they say instead of them saying thank you Lord what did they say what is this we detest this manna we want more than God's best has to offer I'm gonna help somebody when you want more than what God has to offer God's best you in trouble when God ceased to cease to not impress you anymore he can't do nothing for me you in trouble you fallen and you ain't hit the flow yet but God's goodness and mercy. That one preacher said a long time ago, every now and then I hear a couple of steps behind me. I look back, I don't see nobody. I look back, I don't see nobody. And then God reminds me his goodness and mercy is following me. Well, it is a sad reality that sometimes familiarity breeds contempt. But to Nazareth, Jesus went anyhow. And Pastor Marriott, it takes great courage to serve God's folk and to continue to serve God's folk. And you see, uh, some scholars call this episode Jesus' one failure. According to Mark, the first gospel narrative written, Jesus did not waste time wallowing in pity, nor did he drink the poison of rejection. Somebody, you need to stop sipping from that cup. What poisonous rejection, allowing people to try to control your self-esteem, how you look, how you feel, how you walk, if you're beautiful, if you're not beautiful. They just plan you for a sucker. Got you on a yo-yo. You got to take your power back. Say, I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. That's not in the script. That's just for somebody. Well, what did Jesus do after his so-called failure? He didn't waste time wallowing in pity, nor did he drink the poison of rejection. What did Jesus do after Nazareth? 
in Mark's gospel, Jesus' failure is immediately mm. overturned by the implementation of Jesus calling the twelve. Yes. The power rejected by Jesus' family and neighbors in Nazareth was funneled, channeled into and through the world through the work of Jesus' chosen and specially commissioned 12 commissioned disciples. So on a bad day, Pastor Marriott, when you're feeling unappreciated, you're wondering who's getting it, just remember the few in the pew who get it. Just remember the fear in the period, and you keep investing in them uh, because like the parable of the sower, one out of four is all right. Yeah. Oh, that's not good math, preacher. One out of four, that's just one fourth. What about the three fourths? Well, the last one, the seed fell on good soil, and they did what they brought forth some 30, 60, and 100 fold. I love God's math because you know what? God don't need you, and God don't need me. He chooses to use us. Amen. That's what he said. If y'all don't praise him, the rocks will cry out. Well, Jesus preached his sermon. And the pew members preached their sermon. So what am I asking us to remember this day? What tasty morsels of truth uh, can you take with you? Well, you got to remember in any church community, the congregation preaches more than half the sermon. Amen. I'm going to say that again. Y'all preach more than half the sermon. Y'all help create an atmosphere. I've learned from 18 years of pastoring. People may come to church. People may come to Allen Temple because of him and her. But you know why they're going to stay? Say amen, somebody. I'm trying to give you some knowledge. I'm trying to give you some wisdom. I'm trying to give you some understanding. They may come because of the pastor and family, but they will stay because of you, because you all help create an atmosphere. And the atmosphere is either a barrier which, uh, through which the preacher's words cannot penetrate, or it's an atmosphere of great expectancy that even the poorest prepared sermon becomes a living flame moving like a freight train. So let me close. Let me close. I wonder what was on Jesus' mind as he left his hometown synagogue where he grew up. I imagine him seeing himself there at the Bema. That's the pulpit for those of you who have never been in a synagogue. I can imagine Jesus seeing himself there at the beam of the pulpit, reciting lines from the Torah at his bar mitzvah at 12 years old with his father Joseph at his side. I can imagine, can you see Jesus at the table over there downstairs where they were playing games as they ate community meals at Rosh Hashanah, the Jewish New Year celebration. Can't you see Jesus leave for the last time, leaving Nazareth? and his father's carpentry shop as he passed by to follow the heavenly calling bestowed upon him at his baptism in the Jordan at age 30. In my holy imagination, 
I'm certain Jesus made a choice to focus on the positive, not the negative. I see Jesus turning his thoughts not toward the hard-hearted, but to the open-hearted who believed and received and appreciated and who were blessed. I'm sure Jesus found some small joy in the few lives that would change versus those who would never change because they didn't want to. In Jesus' humanity and his flesh, I wonder if Jesus was curious about the good he'd done after he was gone. One always wonders about the good they've done. What will live on afterwards? But Jesus reminded himself, and I'm here to remind you, Pastor Marriott, it's the Lord's. The harvest belongs to the Lord. Jesus reminded himself, it's the Lord of the harvest business. Jesus had the peace of knowing he gave them what God gave them. He dropped it in the box, and it was up to them to open it, receive it, or not. And, and so, as I think about Jesus' leaving and all the work he had done, I remember a poem by an unknown author called Our Fruit We May Not See. Young woman was a great lover of flowers and set out a rare vine at the base of a stone wall in a backyard. And it grew vigorously, but that vine did not bloom. And it groomed and groomed, and it grew and it grew day after day. She cultivated it, she watered it, she talked to it, she tried to do everything to make it bloom, and she just hung her head, thought about pulling it up. And one morning, as she stood there disappointed looking, her neighbor on the other side, she said, Paula, come over here. You can't imagine how much I've been enjoying the blooms of the vine you planted. And Paula looked over, and on the other side of the wall was a mass of blooms. The vines had crept through the crevices and flowered luxuriantly on the other side. Beloved of God here, no matter whose sermon is the loudest, the longest, gets the most thumbs up on social media, remember this so often, sometimes we think our efforts are wasted because we do not see their fruit. But we all need to learn that in God's service, our prayers, in God's service, our toil, in God's service, our sacrifices are never in vain. Why is that, choir? It's because somewhere they bear fruit and hearts will receive blessings and joy. Somewhere, even after we're gone, the light still shines in darkness and the darkness will never overcome the light. Somewhere, after our faces fade and our voices are laid low, the glorious gospel of Christ still speaks because what you and you and you and you and you and you and you, what we do, we should all do in love for God and for God's glory alone. When the pew preaches,
When the pew preaches, when the pew preaches, so what sermon will you preach today?